Blog Talk Radio. The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Corporate Persons Blog Talk Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Ken Apologetic Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. We will be discussing common objections to the Catholic faith. Uh, hopefully, John Banco will be able to join us today. You can join me also if you call in at 515-602-9655. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. That's catholic with a K at the, the number four, persons.com. I'm also available to come speak at your parish on this or many other topics. You can contact me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or just look me up on Facebook. So, let's get to our first question here. This comes from my friend Alan S. over in the Philippines. And he writes, There is a group of followers and believers of our Lord Jesus Christ that use the Hebrew for Christ as Messiah as they are a messianic assembly. They argue that Jesus' real name is Yeshua and all people in his time would have used the original word from Hebrew and Aramaic. They say that salvation can only be attained through the one name of the Messiah, and there is no other name given here on earth under the earth. That only name is Yeshua, not like any other name like Jesus. So this is the answer for him and for anybody else wondering about this. Many people get caught up in debates about the proper way to pronounce Jesus' name. Yes, it would have been pronounced Yeshua in Aramaic at the time of Jesus. 
However, the power is in the name of Jesus through intention, not letters or pronunciation. Yeshua is based on what we now call in English Joshua. In Greek, there is no letter J, so I is substituted. In Latin, does Latin also does not have the letter J, so I is used in Latin. Even modern European languages that have the letter J pronounce it with a Y sound. Some people think that Jesus is offended by the way we mispronounce his name or that our prayers in the wrong name are not effective. God is outside of time and space. He knows our intentions in our prayers, which is why we can pray silently and God still knows what we are praying for. Jesus does not have our human frailty of being offended by a wrong name. Since Jesus left his authority with his church, we can trust its guidance in how to say Jesus' name. Always remember that Jesus gave his authority to bind and loose in Matthew chapter 16. The church exercised this authority in Acts chapter 15, when it gave a binding decree to all Christians that directly contradicted what scripture taught at that time. Scripture said that the followers of the one true God had to be circumcised. The Council of Jerusalem changed that and said that the followers of the one true God did not. Even though Jesus and the apostles were Jews and were circumcised according to the law at that time. Let's see if John's been able to join us yet. No. Okay, so the next question we have comes from Marie T. The Holy Spirit regenerates by the word of God, as shown in James chapter 1, verse 18, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, which is the gospel, as shown to us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 8. And so my answer to Marie, of course, is amen. James chapter 1, 18 says... Of his own will, he brought, for, for, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First Peter chapter 1, verses 23 through 25 says, You have been born anew, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of God abides forever. That word is the good news which was preached to you. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 3 says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because you have heard of your because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of this you have heard before in the word of the truth the gospel which is the gospel yes which 
has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. So among yourselves, from the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth, as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So, yes, the Holy Spirit does regenerate us, makes us born again through the Word of God. And the Word of God is Jesus' last command to his apostles, which was to go out and teach everything he taught them and to baptize in the Trinity with water. You find that in Matthew chapter 28. In the Catholic Church, that is what we do. Using the words of Jesus, we baptize people, which regenerates them and makes them a member of the body of Christ, as shown in Acts chapter 2, which occurred 10 days later. So, in the Catholic Church, we recognize that in Acts chapter 2, we find Peter and the rest of the apostles preaching to the Jews, giving them the gospel that Jesus died for their sins. When the Jews ask what they must do, Peter says, repent and be baptized. The first convert, this is from Acts chapter 2, in starting at the section that says the first converts. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? So note here that the Jews are deciding what they must do. Just the Holy Spirit, you know, instantly empowering them and saying, saving them. They're deciding what to do. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children, and to all that are far off, everyone whom the Lord of our God calls to him. And he testified with many other words and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves, note this, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So Peter is telling the Jews to save themselves. So much for the Protestant idea that our salvation is in God alone. God does save us, but it's our free will choice to choose to follow God that saves us. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. So a couple more things to unpack here. That uh, In Colossians, it talk, talks about how uh, the Christians there in Colossae learned from Epaphras, a fellow servant in Jesus Christ. Now, we don't have any letters from Epaphras, and Epaphras wasn't reading from the New Testament to the people there in Colossae. He was passing on the teachings of Jesus that he learned from Paul. Paul had not yet written his letter of 2 Timothy, so how did Epaphras have the authority to preach. Well, the church was already handing on the faith 
and the authority to teach as shown in Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 15, where in Acts chapter 1, they pick a replacement for Judas, and in Acts chapter 15, they send out authorized men to pass on the teaching that was decided at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. So the Protestant idea that we are supposed to only go by the Bible alone because that's the only thing that is reliable is disproven here. So um, John appears to be ready, so I'm going to try adding him here. So please stand by. John, are you there? Yeah, sorry. Uh, sorry I'm late to the party, but uh, I'm here. No problem. Glad to have you. Were you able to hear my last uh, question well, and I answer? Caught the tail, yeah, I caught the tail end of it. Uh, why, why don't you just go ahead and repeat the repeat the question, and I'll pick it up there. Okay. So Marie T. says, The Holy Spirit regenerates by the word of God, as shown in James chapter 1, verse 18, and 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23 which is the gospel that is given to us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Um, I read all those writings. Would you like me to read them again? No, no that's all right. Okay. That, that's all right. Uh, so, you know, what we have here is, uh, we've seen it before, it's a logical fallacy called the equivocation fallacy. The equivocation fallacy works like this. When there is... When there are multiple ways of defining a word or a term, uh, the person argues that only one inter one definition, one interpretation can be used, and they apply that to all arguments, even when that particular definition does not apply. In this case, she's using the term the Word of God, which is uh, broadly uh, interpreted in a number of ways, and she is interpreting it as word of God being only scripture. Well, that's a Protestant invention. And nowhere does it say the word of God is only scripture. Uh, scripture is one manifestation of the word of God. And only when it is properly translated, interpreted, etc. So what she's saying here, she's making an argument that the scripture doesn't make. And her argument is that regeneration is only done through scripture. That's not what the passage says. It's only done through the word of God. So the passage is saying that we are generated only by the initiation of God, only by God's will, by God's intent, however he intends to manifest that and communicate that to us. And she's arguing that that's only done in Scripture. Well, there's nothing in the text that says that. And Ken, the idea is illogical, completely illogical, because of the fact that men produced the Scriptures. Okay? If you take men out of the equation, you don't have any Scriptures. If you don't have John, you don't have the Gospel of John. If you don't have Luke, you don't have the book of Acts. So it, this whole idea that the witness is trumped by the testimony, it's, it's absurd and it's completely untenable. Right. 
a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters, you know, will claim that the the scriptures in the New Testament, well, in the whole Bible, are written by the Holy Spirit. And because they don't want, they're taught, you know, following John Calvin's dis, um, tradition, that we are totally, um, totally um, depraved and can't do anything good right. for God. Right. And the, so therefore the, the writers, the men that wrote the New Testament or the rest of the Bible um, couldn't possibly do something good for God. So therefore, they uh, the scriptures are only written by the Holy Spirit. But what we do know is that men wrote down what they had learned from Jesus, and like Luke wrote down what he had learned from uh, the many different accounts that he had gathered together and put them into an orderly uh, gospel in Book of Acts. The church approved what they had written and said, yes, these are the inspired ones, and these are the ones we can read at Mass. That's how the New Testament actually came together. So, so uh, the I'm, text... I'm, go ahead, John. The text counter, counters that. In fact, Paul writes in one of his letters, he writes, I'm not sure if I baptized any of you. He's trying to recall. Well, the Holy Spirit can't remember? <laughs> That's what you're right. basically saying. <laughs> and, in, uh -huh. and in every one of in every one of his epistles, uh, save the, the book of Hebrews, which is controversial as to whether Paul actually wrote Hebrews or not. But in all the other 13, he starts off by saying, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is claiming authorship of those books. Well, is Paul claiming to be the Holy Spirit? They don't understand the difference between inspiration and dictation. The Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures. He didn't write them. He right. inspired the Holy Scriptures, and the Holy Scriptures were written by the pens of men through the inspiration of God. Right? It's it's it, it's how God has worked with His creation from day one. Now, we don't understand that sometimes. God certainly is able to act independent of His creation. Uh, but for reasons that we don't fully understand, God has decided to involve his creation in his work. That's just the way that he's done it. And Scripture is just an example of that. It's it's written word. It's it, it's man-made. It's it's written word on paper, printed by a, by a, uh, a printing press or or a word processor or what have you. It, they, but, right. This this idea that the that the scriptures are are the the one and only native you know authority that they are basically personifying and divinizing human. That's what they're doing. Uh, the, the scriptures are the word of God in a sense. In a sense, they're a, a picture of the word of God but only, again, as they are properly translated and properly interpreted. 
when you get to this starting point where you say, okay, well, you know, we only go by the Bible. All right. Once you get, once you concede that starting point, if you're a Catholic, you've already lost the debate because now you're at the mercy of whatever interpretation they inject into the scriptures because you've already conceded. Well, the Bible is the final authority. So actually conceded is my interpretation of the Bible is the final authority. Exactly. So I'm getting uh, a message here that, uh, you know, we're, we're connected through blog talk radio, but it's not coming through on StreamYard. Um, so they're, when, they're not when, seeing when, you on StreamYard or they're not hearing me on StreamYard? They're not hearing you on StreamYard because we're yeah. not connected through StreamYard. Yeah, and, I, so. and I'm not surprised. That's something that we're going to figure out a way to work that out, and and we'll we'll get that worked out so that we're able to do that. Uh huh. So what I what I would have to do is I think send you a link, and then you'd need to connect through screen, Streamyard. Yeah, which is uh, yeah, which is something that I can do. We'll, we'll we're going to work that out. That's all I mm-hmm. would say. Okay. All right. So uh, so let's move on to the next question. Uh, uh-huh. Jim A. asks, the question is, what specific good works are most meritorious of salvation? Is there a point total? How do Catholics possibly ever know they are saved? As the Apostle John says, that believers can't be your answer with Scripture. Now, John A. is one of those guys that uh, insists that uh, the only word of God is that which is written in Scripture. <laughs> right. And everything else is tradition and most likely wrong. So right. my answer to him is the good work that is most meritorious for salvation is baptism. Because baptism makes us a member of the body of Christ. In Acts chapter 22, this is from Scripture for him, <laughs> says to Paul, why do you persecute me? Jesus had already ascended into heaven, but Paul was persecuting the church, which is the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes that if a man joins himself with a prostitute, he joins the body of Christ to her, profaning the body of Christ. There is no point system for salvation, The good works we do as members of the body of Christ are Jesus' works done through us. Again, that's a Catholic thing that we recognize we're a member of the body of Christ, so Jesus can work through us. But for Protestants that accept John Calvin's tradition of we're totally depraved and can't do anything good for God, they have a problem Mm -hmm. with us doing things on God's behalf. But since the Bible teaches that we are members of the body of Christ, we can do things which are Jesus' works done through us. Um, and Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, I am now rejoicing in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh. I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. So again, this shows that we can suffer along with Christ for the sake of his church. 
And when we come to Christ and are incorporated into his body, the church, we have to live like Christ every day. And again, this shows that, you know, Protestants will say that Jesus did it all and we don't have to do anything. But Paul, Paul, the favorite, you know, apostle of Protestants tells us that we can do stuff <laughs> that we can combine with Jesus for the sake of his church. Us lowly, totally depraved men. There is no limit on the number of good works that we can do for God's glory. Galatians chapter 5 tells us that circumcision, a work of the law, doesn't save us, but faith working through love does. Romans chapter 2 tells us that God will render to every man according to his works, and that it's not the hearers of the law that are justified, but the doers of the law that will be justified. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For God is the one who works in you to both desire and to live the commandments to have eternal life. James chapter 2 tells us three times that faith and works are both necessary. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus tells us that he who continues working in the body of Christ to the end shall be saved. Catholics have reasonable assurance that we are saved as long as we are in a state of grace. That is, we have no unconfessed mortal sins. Since we have free will, Catholics and Protestants don't know for sure that they will fall into mortal sin later in life or in life won't fall into mortal sin later on in life before they die. If we die without repenting of our mortal sins, we will end up in hell because we have chosen to separate ourselves from God's family. So what would you like to add to that, John? Yeah, there's a point system. The point system, the point total is one. It takes one mortal sin for me to cast myself into hell. One sin of a grave matter committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent is enough to separate me from God eternally. Now, the Bible is very clear on this. Now, he asked what good works. Well, Jesus identified himself with the human race by taking on human flesh and dying on a cross. And Jesus made a little bargain with us. And that bargain is this. Because we cannot possibly repay to God what he has done for us, and we cannot possibly give to God anything that he doesn't already have. Jesus made a bargain to us. And that, and in that bargain, you see that in Matthew chapter 25, where he identifies himself with the least of our brothers and sisters. And says, what you did to me, you did to my brothers and sisters. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And he will look to those on his left and say, I was hungry, and you did not feed me. I was, na I was thirsty, and you did not give me drink. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was imprisoned, and you did not visit me. And what does Jesus say to them, Ken? He says, they will go off to everlasting punishment. They will be cast into the outer darkness where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth. Here, Jesus 
is directly and unequivocally tying works to salvation. He's tying the two together. So do Catholics believe that we can earn our salvation? No, we do not. But we do believe we can earn our damnation. We do believe we can earn our damnation. And to know what God commands us to do, to do what God commands us to do, and yet refuse to do it, and then claim we have faith? This is what Jesus talked about when he said, many will say, Lord, Lord. And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Jesus says, gross is the heart of this people. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. How could a heart be farther from Jesus when you're claiming to know him and follow him, and yet you persist in mortal sin? And we're not just talking about committing mortal sin. We're talking about a person who commits mortal sin and persists in it, refuses to repent of it. And John answers this very clearly. He who says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So I would say to Jim, A, follow the gospel. It's really simple. Open up Matthew chapter 25 and read those three short stories in Matthew chapter 25 and tell me how you can escape that chapter of the Bible with this notion that works are completely disconnected from salvation. It's it's absurd. You, I I think sometimes can they the Protestants say they believe the Bible. I think they must rip Matthew chapter twenty five out of their Bibles. That's the only way they can believe the Bible. Yes. Uh the I think um they should publish a Protestant Bible that just has their favorite verses in there and leaves yeah. out the rest if, of it because uh, – Yeah, if, I, if, 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 if the Protestant – if they ever produced a Protestant Bible based on verses that Protestants actually believe, it would be the thinnest Bible. It would be like – their total Bible would be less than, our, than, than, than the Psalms in our Bible. Right. And uh, the – I often tell Protestants that you need a theology that works with the whole Bible, not just your favorite verses. Right. And uh, Catholic, well, and I explain to them that Catholic theology works with the whole Bible because the Catholic theology came before we discerned the canon of Scripture, and we put the books in that work with our theology um, because that was one of the criteria exactly. of being a exactly. book in the Bible. Does this exactly. For instance, what we are already teaching. Yeah. For example, Ken, when they say that we're saved by love, Paul says there's three virtues: faith, hope, and love. And love is the greatest of the three. Right. Well, how can love be the greatest virtue when we're saved by faith alone? It's very mm-hmm. simple because faith, faith, hope, and love act in harmony, and you can't have one without the other two. You know, I want to expand on what you said about James. James not only says that, that that we must have faith in works, he basically says they're inseparable. He says that that faith uh, that works are the completion and perfection of faith. And, you know, I always use the analogy: people who are trying to have faith without works, or who are trying to have water without wet, <laughs> it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And you know, 
wet is a characteristic of water, so uh, as you say, go hand in hand. And you right. know, and that's so, why James so makes it to... so clear that you know, faith without works is dead, and works without faith are also dead. Right. Um, what they're yet talking Protestants about is not follow faith. that idea of faith alone, which is not written in the Bible. Yes, it yeah, does and, say that and, we're saved and they're by faith, actually... but not alone. They're actually using a misdefinition of faith because when you divorce works from faith, it's no longer faith. It's it's assent to faith. It's a proclamation of faith, a declaration of faith. Faith is an action. It's something that actually has to be acted out. All right? To say, I believe, you know, James says, you believe God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, but they don't have faith. So. Right. And uh, you know, Protestants will say that we're say that we're saved by faith in Jesus or by believing in Jesus. But if you come to have faith in Jesus, in Jesus, and you believe in Jesus, then you will do what Jesus says we have to do to be saved. And that right. first do thing is get baptized. And then right. we have to take up our cross daily. We have to eat his flesh and drink his blood and to have eternal life. Uh, and we have to do the works of mercy. Yeah, and and the 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 early early Christians certainly didn't believe faith alone. <laughs> they proved their faith. They were martyred. They took their faith right. to their death. If you're mm-hmm. saved by faith alone, what's the thing about you know? Uh, the, the lions and, 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 and crucifixion and shot by arrows and, and dragged through the streets. Uh, that doesn't sound like faith alone to me. Right. Okay. So this is a question that I got from a Facebook, the right way to do Ash Wednesday. Um, now I'm not familiar with the Anglican version like what they do on Ash Wednesday. Um, But since the Anglican Church broke away from the Catholic Church, the original Catholic Church, when Henry VIII decided he was going to break away from the Pope, and Henry VIII basically declared himself as the Pope of the Anglican Church. Um, Now, some people try to say that the Anglican Church is like the third branch of uh, original Christianity, like the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, and then the Anglican Church. But the Anglican Church, when they broke away, yes, they had valid clergy at that time, valid, validly ordained clergy, um, but since the Bishop Canterbury became like the spiritual leader of the Anglican Church, and the king was over top of the Bishop of Canterbury. Um, Soon after that, they changed their ordination for bishops and priests, and they are no longer validly ordained. And since they are a combined political and religious organization now, we have seen how the Anglican Church has largely, you know, become very subject to secular ideas. You know, the Anglican Church has women bishops. The Anglican Church has gay clergy. 
the Anglican Church has gay marriage. You know, it's mm. obvious that the Anglican Church has fallen largely into the secular culture. Um, now, there is a more traditional branch of the Anglican Church, and even here in the U.S., there is the uh, it's a branch of the Anglican Church um, that is in union with the Catholic Church. Um, there's a special word for that Anglican. It's not like not a rite like yeah. the Eastern rites of the Catholic Church. The, the Anglican the Ordinariate, union, I think they call it. Ordinariate. There you go. Thanks, John. Yeah. It's the Anglican Ordinariate. So those clergy are validly ordained Anglican uh, priests and they do have a valid Eucharist then, and they are continued to allow uh, to celebrate using the Anglican liturgy, but they are actually in union with the Catholic Church. So that would be the best way to approach this idea of getting the Anglicans to do Ash Wednesday the right way. And I assume that the Anglican Ordinariate Roman Rite Catholic Church that they are broken off from and reunited with. So you ready for the next one, John? Or anything you want to add? Yep. Well, the only thing that I would add is that, that I would take it farther than just Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is just the entrance into Lent. I would use Lent uh, as a time to really dive down into what the early church taught and what our church believes and why you must be separated from the world. Uh, you know, it, we're not here to win a popularity contest with the world. Yeah, I laugh when I hear these end of the world, you know, people that are that the Catholic church is going to unite the world in a one world religion. Okay. <laughs> we're the, the least likely church on the earth that's going to be able to unite everybody into our way. You know, it's right. not likely to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Catholic Church, you know, reaches out to you know people of all faith, uh, and some people attack the Catholic Church for trying to reach out to other people of different faith yeah. traditions, but. Until you start talking to one another, you can't, you know, start unifying. Yeah, and you have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross. That's really not a message that's selling well with the world. I can tell you right. that right now. <laughs> yes. Yeah, people don't want to take up their cross daily. People want to just, you know, be happy and sit in front of their uh, computer or their t their phone or their TV and yeah. eat munchies. No, they want right. the come easy in, life. Come in and get your ashes on Ash Wednesday, and then just kind of mail it in and fill. Uh, you know, it's what what they call the uh, the pace Catholics: Palm Sunday, Ash Wednesday, Christmas, and Easter, and then you just kind of mail uh -huh. it in the rest of the year. That's not going to uh -huh. work that way. Right. Oh, we got to be Catholic Christians every day of the year, <laughs> not just on yep. Sunday for an hour. <laughs> every day of the year, right. all day. <laughs> right. That's not easy. Okay. Uh, so the next question I have here is another one from my good buddy, Jim A. And he writes, we hear sometimes about tradition, tradition, or capital S, sacred 
tradition. They take it to mean teaching that came after the time of the completion of Scripture, and Catholicism requires that Catholics believe that this teaching is equal to the very Word of God. Some even go so far as to claim, without any basis, that sacred tradition is the actual teaching of Christ and the apostles that for some reason never got written down. But is tradition just as true as what God says? Let's look at an example of oral tradition from Scripture. John chapter 21, verse 20 through 23, relates the following. Peter turned around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his chest at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who is betraying you? So Peter, upon seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this account went on, went out among the brothers that this, that that disciple, which is John, would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? In this story, Peter asks about the apostle John, and Jesus tells Peter that if he, he, Jesus, wanted John to live until Jesus returned. What is that to Peter? When the oral tradition spread that Jesus said that John would not, wouldn't die, but it was wrong. Why? Because they had the wrong idea. It didn't test it against the word of Jesus, the word of God. Tradition is teaching. It can be correct or incorrect but it is never fallible or inerrant. Only God's word is. Test teaching against the highest authority, God's word. So uh, this answer here is also pretty long. <laughs> and I answered um, Jim. I agree that the words of Jesus can be misinterpreted by fallible people. I agree that the word tradition means teaching. Whenever you're talking with uh, Protestants about you know, theology, start with what you agree on. There is the written tradition and the oral tradition. The problem you Protestants have is that you think the only infallible tradition is the written tradition. This neglects the fact that before there was a written tradition, there was an oral tradition. Protestants think that only the writings in the Bible are infallible. However, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 15 that the church can only can give a Holy Spirit guided declaration to the church that is binding on all Christians. The decree that released Christians from the Old Testament ceremonial and kosher laws directly contradicted the only scripture they had available at the time, since the New Testament was still being written. Now, Jim refers to, you know, this idea that the early Christians had that, you know, John wouldn't die until Jesus came back. And then he says, well, if they would have checked that against scripture, they would have known that, you know, John was going to die. 
But he's assuming that when Jesus said that, that the New Testament was already written and they could look that up in their New Testament, which is totally preposterous because Protestants think that the first Christians started with a New Testament and then developed Christianity. And that's not how it happened. So the apostles and Luke were not following around with Jesus and writing down everything he taught. Instead, we have in the New Testament, we have in the New Testament is some of the teachings of Jesus remembered by the apostles and interpreted by them in early Christianity. The Gospels of Matthew and John are both from them. Mark wrote down what Peter preached, and Luke wrote down what an orderly account of what he learned from other people, including the apostles. All of these Gospels were written 20 to 50 years after Jesus ascended into heaven, which is why the first century Christians couldn't you know, check their interpretation of the Bible against the Bible since it was still being written in the first century. The writings of Paul and the other epistles were written 10 to 20 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. The epistles are letters of guidance in how to live the faith in early Christianity. Paul's letters often are specific to people or communities. The epistles were copied and shared among the early Christian communities to share the good guidance in them. The Didache, the Epistle of Barnabas, Shepherd of Hermas, First Clement to the Corinthians, were written around the same time as the rest of the New Testament writings. They were also copied and shared like other writings from the apostles and their secretaries, and used to guide the early Christian communities. Some of them were read during the divine liturgy, the Mass, of the early churches. Paul tells us about his letter to the Laodiceans and his letter to the Colossians, but we don't have that in the New Testament. Paul also tells us that he had written to the Corinthians before the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. We only have writings from six of the 14 apostles, if you include Matthias and Paul. It is only logical to think that they wrote something to their Christian communities, but for some reason, they didn't get shared much. The way we know that the what the correct interpretation of the writings that came to be known as New Testament is correct is to learn how they were actually put into practice in the early church. The Corinthians obviously didn't expect John to live forever, which is why they wrote a letter to the church in Rome when they had a problem. Paul encouraged everyone to stay single, if married, to live as brother and sister, because they thought Jesus was coming back soon. You'll find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29. We now know that Paul was wrong in his teaching since Jesus did not come back in his lifetime. The way we come to know how the early Christians understood the early Christian writings is to read the church fathers, who write commentaries on the writings that were latest, later established as the New Testament, and how Christians would live. Generally, the writings of the early church fathers support the Catholic interpretation of the New Testament. Protestants think that men can't give an infallible interpretation of the Bible, yet they do think that the men that 
can be guided by the Holy Spirit to write what God wants taught. The apostles received the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and their actions were guided by the Holy Spirit as recorded in the book of Acts, as especially shown in Acts chapter 15. The Holy Spirit is also invoked in 1st Clement to the Corinthians. The early Christian leaders understood that their actions in the church could be guided by the Holy Spirit. They gave binding decrees to Christians and ecumenical councils as early church disputes were worked out. If the Holy Spirit can inspire men to write infallible scripture, it can also inspire men to give infallible decrees to the church that are binding on all Christians. Protestants are in the difficult position position of having men tell them what the scriptures mean and not being able to know if for sure if they are giving the correct understanding of what the scriptures say. I hope this helps you understand that Jesus didn't leave the scriptures behind so the early Christians would know what to do. Jesus left his authority with his church. That same church determined which of the 140 early Christian writings could be read during the divine liturgy, the Mass. The list of books that became the Bible was established by men who were guided by the Holy Spirit. Jesus left a church, not a book. You do well to listen to the church. So what would you like to add to that, John? Yeah, so if you went to a person in the second century, a first century or the second century, and you said to them, well, you know, what you're saying is wrong because John chapter 14, verse 3 says this. He would look at you like you had three heads because there was no such thing as John chapter 14, verse 3. There's in verses came centuries later. The Catholic Church divided the Bible into chapters and verses. Now, Jim has that problem. He also has the problem of even defining what books are in the canon. Tell me, by using Scripture, what books should be in the New Testament. You can't. So that's a, that is a church tradition that he follows. Because if you ask Jim, is Matthew uh, a Scripture? Yes. Is John scripture? Is Luke scripture? He'll say yes. Well, then you agree with the tradition of the Catholic Church. In fact, without the tradition of the Catholic Church, you can't even positively identify the writers of the four Gospels. In, in none of the four Gospels does it explicitly say, like Paul's letters do, you know, or Paul gives authorship of his letters, that happens in none of the four Gospels. It is a church tradition that Matthew wrote Matthew, and Mark wrote Mark, and Luke wrote Luke, and et cetera. So, and I know you've been over this. You've covered this many, many times. Jim A., we've asked this person to debate us. He refuses to, to debate us. He refuses to get into an honest, open conversation. So when you answer questions of his, all you can really do is talk past him to the people who might be open to hearing the truth, because he clearly doesn't want to hear the truth. clearly wants to be stuck in this paradigm that God dropped the Bible on us from the sky, and it is the only authority that we are to watch, and we are to interpret it any way that we want to and be held to that interpretation. And yet 
that Bible that he's referring to says that if you have a dispute with your brother over sin, take it to the church in in Matthew chapter 18. So he clearly doesn't want to hear the truth. You've expounded it to him very eloquently. He doesn't want to listen. So, he, you know, you can't explain something to somebody who has a finger in each one of his ears. Uh, you can only, like I said, talk past him to somebody who might be, you know, open to hearing the truth. Right. Um, a lot of my responses to Protestants are, well, they're for the benefit of that Protestant um, and also anybody else who reads it. Uh, and I feel obligated to give an answer uh, because God gave me the knowledge that I have well, and did you use it. But if of course, people I agree reject with that. it, you, that's you give up an to answer, them. But yeah, you, you give an answer. It doesn't mean they're going to accept it. You know, there's exactly. people that don't know the truth because of ignorance, and there's people who don't know the truth because of willful ignorance. Uh, right. And, yeah, they they fall into the latter category. Yep. And that's why I often wish Protestants, you know, I wish you well on your judgment day because yeah. I want them to go to heaven. But, you know, if they refuse to, you know, submit the teaching of God's church, you know, they may find themselves in hell. I always yeah. leave judgment to God alone. Yeah, I don't tell people yeah, you're going to hell because you don't agree with me. It's that's not, up not to the me. outcome that we're hoping for, but uh, you know we have to you know present them with with the facts. So, right, just give them an answer and let God sort them out. Yep, we got time for another question. Yep, I think we can uh, sneak this one in. Okay, this one comes from Marie T. When did the apostles teach that a priest makes an invisible and unseen change of the inner substance of the bread and wine while the outward appearance remains the same? <laughs> so she's talking about the Eucharist here, in case uh, people don't know. Mm -hmm. But uh, so my answer to her is in John chapter 6, Jesus says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood to have eternal life. And he says that three times, and the many people that were following of him, him at that time, almost all of them left. Only the 12 apostles stayed. Now, it wasn't until the Last Supper that the disciples understood how they were able to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And this is covered in Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke chapter 22, and by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. In every chapter, Jesus says, this is my body about the bread, and this is my bud, blood about the cup of wine. The words are plain and easy to understand here. Now, in Luke chapter 24, we learn that after the crucifixion, two disciples were on the road to Emmaus, and they came to know Jesus through the breaking of the bread which was the Eucharist. When Luke writes the book of Acts, he refers many times to the breaking of the bread as a shortcut referring to this Eucharistic meal. Now, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, abuses at the Lord's Supper, starting at verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not command you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you assemble as a church, 
I hear that there are divisions amongst you, and I partly believe it. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you meet together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you have? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? What shall I command you in this? No, I will not. About the institution of the Lord's Supper. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord, I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death and that he comes until he comes. And Paul writes about how Christians are receiving the partaking in the supper unworthily. So starting at verse 27, Paul writes, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. For man examines himself, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we should not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are chastened, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If one is hungry, let him eat at home lest you come together to be condemned. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. Paul knew that the bread and wine that were shared at the Lord's Supper were not ordinary bread and wine. Otherwise, it would not matter whether the Corinthians were in a worthy state or not. And also note here that Paul says that he will give them more directions when he comes. And we don't have a written copy of that. So, would, was Paul's teaching when he arrived there not scripture? Well, it's not scripture in that it's not written down, but it's still the teaching of Jesus, inspired word of God. Now, the Didache that was written along with the other New Testament writings explains that the Eucharist is holy. It was also written in the first century. Yep. And in 107 AD, Ignatius of Antioch writes that Christians should have nothing to do with people who do not recognize Jesus' presence in the Eucharist. Now, this is something I often tell Protestants. You have free will to follow some guy, new guy's interpretation of the Bible or the original interpretation of the Bible that was handed on by the apostles to their successors. Choose wisely. I wish you well on your judgment day, and then wish them peace in Christ. So what would you like to add to that, John? 
Well, you know, Paul talked about when he wrote his letter to Timothy, he talked about a church at the end times that would make a pretense of religion while denying its power. Well, that's where we're living today. You talk mm-hmm. about the Eucharist as being something that's easy to understand. It is easy to understand. It's just very difficult to believe, okay, because it takes faith, all right, because your eyes are telling you that it's bread. That's what your eyes are telling you. And Catholics are given every time that a Catholic, and they go every day if the opportunity presents itself, but every day that a Catholic goes to receive the the Eucharist, they're given the opportunity to make that profession of faith. When the priest holds up the Eucharist and says, the body of Christ, and you answer by saying, amen, which means it is so. Now, Paul's words, as you said, are clear enough. He said, anyone who eats the bread and drinks the cup unworthily is guilty of profaning the body and blood of Christ. Well, how could that be possible if it's just bread and wine? That's impossible. The word discern can means to recognize. That's what the word discern means, to recognize what is truth. Right? And Paul says, he who eats the bread and drinks the cup without discerning the body eats and drinks damnation unto himself. Uh, that, that verse of Scripture there should terrify Protestants who don't believe in the Eucharist. It should terrify you that if you receive the bread and drink the cup without discerning it, without recognizing it as the body, and there's a lot of Catholics that are doing that. There are a lot of faithless Catholics who are doing that. So mm-hmm. it's easy to understand. It's easy to understand, but it takes faith. Now, Protestants always talk about they have faith, and Catholics don't have faith. Well, we prove our faith every time we go to Mass. When the priest holds up that Eucharist and says, the body of Christ, my senses are telling me it's a piece of bread. That's what my senses are telling me, but that's not what Jesus told me. Jesus told me, this is my body. Jesus said it. That settles it. The end. And that's, that's where faith comes in, because faith, Paul ta- tells us to walk by faith and not by sight. And that is what true faith is, is constantly denying what our lying eyes are telling us. Uh, and, and this is the clearest possible example. I mean, you, I, I, I've talked to many people who've argued against the Eucharist. I said, okay, you philosophical argument against it that it's not logical that Jesus would give us his own body and bread, even while he was alive, that Jesus would give us, offer us his own body at the Last Supper. That's not logical. You're right. It's not logical. Uh, you know, it is impossible, but impossible is just a starting point for God. It's just a starting mm-hmm. point. All right? You can make a philosophical argument against the Eucharist. You cannot make a biblical case against the Eucharist. It's impossible. To make a biblical case against the Eucharist can't be done. Yep. If you want to follow the Bible, then you got to believe Jesus when he said, this is my body and this is my blood. Period. you need it for eternal life. (laughs) Yep. Okay. So that's all we have for today. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes or have a follow-up question, you can send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com or look me up on Facebook. If you'd like to have me 
come speak at your parish on this or many other topics, you can send me an email at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the, to the world. Thanks for joining me, John. Bye, folks. God bless you. Are you ready? Ready to discover your soul, your wild side, your passion, your joy, and excitement. From the latest slots and table games, to award-winning dining, to world-class entertainment, to a luxurious resort. Discover all this and more. Discover with soul. Casino Del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Are you ready? Enterprise of Yaki Tribe. When you fly from Tucson International Airport, the journey is easy from ticketing to takeoff. With affordable, convenient parking, shorter security and check-in lines, and less time wasted compared to driving to Phoenix. At TUS, air travel is as close to relaxing as it can get. Now you can fly nonstop on Alaska Airlines from TUS to Portland, Oregon, Everett, Washington, and Orange County, California. Details at FlyTucson.com.